You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Okay, if you've got a Bible, I'm going to be in Psalms 51. Um, it's going to take me just a little bit to get there, but I'll eventually be there. Uh, we've got a little bit to do today, so I'm going to go and get started. Um, in 1973, a man named J.I. Packer um, who's an evangelical author, wrote a book called Knowing God. And um, J.I. Packer's pretty, pretty popular kind of dude, um, writes a lot of stuff. This is 1973, and he sends this book to the publisher, and the publisher responds to J.I. Packer and says, um, we're only going to publish 2,000 copies of your book. And so now for me, if I were to publish something and they were to print 2,000 copies, I would think that's awesome, a major accomplishment. But for J.I. Packer, who is a lot more popular than I am, um, this was kind of a disappointment. Like, it's why, why would you not published more than 2,000 copies. Um, and so this is, uh, and basically the book Knowing God is all about how God has kind of arranged the universe and orchestrated the events and just kind of, he's just kind of arranged things in such a way that people can know him. So it's literally about knowing God. And then it kind of goes through um, attributes of God and here is God and here's how we know this about God. And so the publishers responded and basically said, the reason why we are only going to publish 2,000 copies of this book is we just think that most Christians think of salvation not so much in terms of knowing God, but in terms of their sins being forgiven or in terms of them going to heaven or in some other kind of secondary blessing that flows from salvation. And so um, this book was, was only printed, 2,000 copies were only printed. Um, today, there's been over a million copies printed. It's been printed in over a dozen different languages, and you can find it at almost any Christian bookstore anywhere. It's a really popular book. And it's just one of those things that happened in the world, one of the many things that just, it's just a reminder and it just sheds light on the reality, the absolute fact that whether or not people can articulate it and whether or not people believe it or even agree with it, the truth is, is that inside everybody, there is a desire to know God, that inside of that you're created to know God, that the world was set up pre-fall in Genesis 1 and 2, where there were people in perfect fellowship and communion with God, that at the very epicenter and core of the gospel is us being able to walk with and know God. And so this is, this is not just something that you're created for, and it's not just something that God has. This is actually a very, um, it's all over the place in the Bible. Like there are, this is one of the underlying themes in all of scripture is people knowing God and God wanting to know you. And so let me just give you, give you a couple of examples in Jeremiah 9. This is what Jeremiah says in 9.23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts in this, that he understands and that he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So if there's anything worthy of you boasting, it's not how much money you have or how successful you are, how many possessions you own or how intelligent you are. God says, if there's anything worthy of you boasting, it's that you know me because you're created to know God. 
and that God wants to know that there's, there, there is something inside of all people at the very core of who they are, what they're actually longing for, although they might not tell you this or articulate it, is knowing God. I'll give you another example. Matthew 11, this is what Jesus says. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. And so we've got Jesus saying, I know the Father, and the Father knows me, and I have the capacity to reveal God to you, to reveal God to people so that you can know him. And so I have this kind of capacity to do this. I can allow you to know God. I can reveal God to you. And then we get to to verse 28, popular verse, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now this is, this is important because you cannot read verses 28 and 29 and, and hear about the blessings of God and the things that come without reading 27 because it's in the context of knowing God that your burdens are lifted and made light. And it's in the context of knowing God that your, that your soul finds rest. So this is an interesting, I mean, it's, it would be not, exegetically right to read the bottom two verses because the bottom two verses having rest for your souls and your burdens being lifted and having um, just your stresses I mean be, knowing Jesus and walking all of that is in the context of knowing God and so the, the, these things come about as a result of knowing God but the context is they come about when we know God and so I'll give you another example um, John seventeen three, Jesus says and this is eternal life that they know you. He's praying to God, John 17, in the great high priestly prayer, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So if you were to just take that and if we were just to say, this is eternal life and you weren't, and you didn't know that verse and you were to have to fill in the blank, what would your blank be? This is eternal life. And for Jesus, the blank is knowing the only true God and knowing Jesus Christ. So salvation and being saved and the gospel, the, just this, I mean, what stands as sinner is us knowing God. And so, and then in 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so if you're wondering, like, what does it mean to become spiritually mature, to grow in sanctification, to grow in Christ-likeness, spiritual maturity and sanctification, those kinds of things happen in the context of knowing God. That that is something that happens when we know God. And the other thing about this verse is we can see that God does not just set commandments around people just because he can. Like he's not just trying to kind of flex the muscle of authority over people so that you have to do, but that he actually, when we obey him and we're obedient to him and we're following his commandments, that in itself provides the context for us to know him better for us to know more of him. So th these are just a few passages. Literally, there are hundreds and hundreds of passages in the Bible about knowing God and about God wanting to know you. And anytime Israel rebels and there's sin in Israel and, and God, it's always a very relational thing. It's, it's them turning from God and from knowing God to loving other things. I mean, it's all over the place. 
all over the place in the Bible. And so um, with that in mind, and in light of knowing God, and if that's a central theme in the Bible, um, one of, if not the primary things that makes it difficult for you to know God, that will shrink your capacity to know God, is sin. And so sin, we, we need to widen and view and, and kind of deepen our, our view of sin because it's not simply doing wrong things. So sin, by definition, if, you're de- if your definition is simply doing wrong things, it's a lacking definition because um, what happens is that sin places relational tension between us and God. I mean, there is, when we walk in disobedience, that shrinks our ability uh, for us to know and walk with God. And listen, here, here's, what's, here's what's scary about this, and Rodney referenced this a couple of weeks ago, is, is you could engage in sinful activity and, not, and, and shrink your capacity to know God and not even realize it. And he referenced Samson a couple of weeks ago in Judges, and this is literally what happens to Samson. Samson, God calls him to do a certain thing, and he just directly does not do it. And the, the literal reading in Judges is, and Samson went to battle, and the presence of God left him, and he didn't even realize it. And so this might seem like basic Christianity, but, but this is something that can happen, and I mean, we not even be aware of it, where, where sin places this kind of relational tension on our relationship with God, and it kind of shrinks our capacity to know God, and eventually we just plateau if sin gets left in our hearts, if it's just lingering. And, and what happened on the cross is, is Jesus died, and in so dying and, and rising, he paid the penalty for your sin, and, and the power of sin was broken, but as a Christian, you still have the lingering presence of sin inside your life, Right? Like, I don't know of the testimony of someone getting saved and all of a sudden they just don't desire sin anymore. That doesn't happen. There's lingering, the presence of sin, it still lingers inside of us. So although the penalty of sin is paid for and the power of sin is broken, there still is the presence of sin inside of us. And this is good that Jesus did in fact break the power of sin, of indwelling sin inside of you. And so you don't have to walk in sin. That there is freedom to walk in obedience. So I'll just give you a quick example. Um, I don't have any children yet, so I haven't had the luxury of flexing my muscle of authority and discipline over anybody, over my children. Not yet. I will. I will, but not yet. Uh, And so I have, in youth, every once in a while, I have to remind people who the authority is when mommy and daddy aren't around. And most of the time, they just laugh at me and make fun of me. and It's really hurtful, but... uh, Dang it. But I have been there. I have had the luxury of receiving discipline in my life before. And so there was a particular season in high school. I, I didn't have just a whole lot of rules, uh, but I, I was required in my home to take out the trash every week. That was my job. So there's a specific season in high school where I was just really wishy-washy about it. Like I just didn't, I would do it sometimes and other times I wouldn't. And, and through the whole period, my dad, there was, it was all grace at the beginning. I mean, there was just, it was friendly reminders. It was just refreshing reminders. Hey, you know, you got the trash, trash runs tomorrow and you take it out, right? And so, um, but there was one particular evening where I had forgotten to take the trash out again. This was over a period of time where I had, I had not done it in a long time. And so, um, and my dad pulled in late from work one night and I was asleep, and I remember just opening my eyes, 
going, I think, I just the feeling of the night is going to go differently tonight. I just felt it. I felt him walk in. There's that presence, that aroma, you know, when dad's angry, you're like, oh no. And so, um, but I remember him walking in my, my room, getting me up and, and making me go take out the trash. And when I came back in, um, it was no more grace anymore. No more grace. Grace, grace period was over. And so we had a talk about it. Uh, and he was frustrated. I mean, he was really legitimately frustrated at me. And, and here's the thing. It wasn't about the trash cans. I mean, it wasn't the evil and, and the reason why there was frustration, why there was tension between my dad and I. It was not, it was more than just not taking out the trash. It was, why is it that my son, Dan, who I provide for and who I love, won't love me enough to take out to do something really little? Why, why won't it, why won't he just do it? It's just something really little. And so this was, it, this type of thing, it, it creates relational tension. There was relational, and really, if you're a parent and you've had seasons like this with, with your, um, with your children, you know that when there is, when there is disobedience in the home, there is tension in the house. And there was that week. Like, you could feel it. Like, there was major tension between my dad and I, um, in this, and it's not like he disowned me. Like, you'd have to mess something up pretty bad for your parent to be like, you're officially no longer my child. And so typically, your parent won't disown you, but there definitely is a strain on the relationship. This is exactly what happens when we willfully embark on sin with our relationship with God. There's just tension and strength. It limits our ability to know him. And so sin is more than just doing wrong things. It's more than just you outwardly. It's, it's more than just a horizontal level of you affecting the people around you. But whether or not you realize it or not, the fact is, and we'll see this more in David in a second, there is a relational strain between you and God when there is sin in your life, when there's lingering, unconfessed, unrepented sin in your heart. And it shrinks your capacity to know him. And so what do we do with that? Like, what do we do with lingering the presence of sin that's still inside of us? And the biblical answer to that is repent, is biblical repentance. And so, and this is just how this goes. If God's message to you is know me, I mean, if he sends this message through scripture and through a variety of other mediums, I would also contend that God's message to you as a Christian and to us as Christians is to repent in hopes that you might know him more. And listen, God sends this message through a variety of different mediums. It comes at us all over the place. God is all, he is in the process of calling people to repentance in hopes that they might know him. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. Anytime you experience anything good, I mean, any type of blessing, if you're in a season of life that's just relatively um, stressless, where there's money in the bank and kids are obedient and you're healthy. Anytime you, you have the luxury of, of seeing a beautiful sunset, those good blessings that God provides, the message that he's sending to that is, I am good. I am good. Is there anything inside of your heart that you need to repent of and return to me? Because I am good. And so the train of thought is, as we see and experience the blessings and the good things of life, that that would call us, that that would help us to remember that God is good, that God gave us those things just to shadow his goodness. And so the, the message through any type of blessing that you, re, that you experience is, God is good. Is there anything that's keeping you from experiencing God? And then repent of it. But then the message, it also comes through catastrophic events. 
the message of repentance all also comes through catastrophic events. Let me explain that for a second. Um, there's a principle that Jesus establishes in Luke 13. And so this is, this is what happens. Luke 13, 1. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. So we don't really know a whole lot about this. We know that Jewish people were doing ceremonial type things and they allowed Pilate to come in and kind of mess with it a little bit and God didn't like that. And so he, he caused them to suffer in some way. So that, we don't really know a whole lot about it. That's pretty much what's going on. Um, verse two, and he answered them and Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here's what's going on. There's two catastrophic events that happen around the people and the people basically ask Jesus, are those people being punished because of their sin? And Jesus basically says, that's just a wrong question to ask. And so although they're, although you're not the direct recipients of the catastrophic event, that event should create inside of you not, not a mentality that says, look at those sinners, they're, they need to repent, but is there anything inside of my life that I need to repent of? So even if you're not the direct recipients of events like that, that the message is still the same. It's, a, it's too narrow of a view to think of catastrophic events like that as God punishing only those recipients. Like that's just too, and so the, the principle is Jesus is trying to get us to broaden our view of, of hard situations in life because the message through those is repent everybody. Not just the people that were the recipients of the event. Not just the people that were the recipients of that kind of, those kinds of events, but it just transcends all that and it goes out to everybody. That the message Jesus is trying to, to send is not, look at those people, they're sinners, they need to repent. But if you witness that, that should trigger inside of your mind, not look at them, they need to repent, but is there anything inside of me that I need to repent of? And so I'll give you a modern day example. This is a crazy example. I read this and this is, this was pretty crazy. August the 19th, 2019, 2009, kind of right around when Stonegate began. Um, it was a Wednesday afternoon in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the, um, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, was having kind of this big convention. Um, they were just kind of doing this big national conference that they do every year. And so um, this is downtown Minneapolis in the, uh, in the conference center. And right in Minneapolis, they have a conference center. And then they also have a Lutheran church uh, right next to, right across the street from it. And um, let me just preface this with, I'm not trying to stir the, the, the pot of controversy here. So I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm just going to make a general statement about what's about to happen just to illustrate the point. And so this could create um, a, a whole set of questions that we're just not going to get to, but I just want to get to a general point here. And so at two o'clock on August the 19th, 2009, this Lutheran conference was going to have a session at 2 p.m. on whether or not it's okay for a pastor to remain in the pastorate um, as, a, as a blatantly and unrepentant homosexual, whether or not it's okay. And so this is 2 p.m., August 19, 2009, Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is two accounts of people that witness what's about to happen. 
On a day when no severe weather was predicted or expected, a tornado forms, baffling the weather experts, most saying they've never seen anything like it. It happens right in the city, the city Minneapolis. The tornado happens on a Wednesday during the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America's National Convention in the Minneapolis Convention Center. The convention is using the Central Lutheran Church across the street as its church. This curious tornado touches down just south of downtown and follows 35 straight towards the city, uh, the city center. It crosses I-94. It is now downtown. The time, 2 p.m. The first buildings on the downtown side of I-94 are the Minneapolis Convention Center and the Central Lutheran Church. The tornado severely damages the convention center roof, shreds the tents, breaks off the steeple of the central, so the steeple, the cross fell, the central Lutheran church, and it split in two, and then the tornado just lifts. Now you can imagine the kind of fallout that that kind of event happened. A tornado in Minneapolis. And so there was all kinds of questions that were raised. And so even it's tempting for even, even Christians today to look at that. And even in our little, our Baptist sect to go, those Lutherans need to repent. But the message of that is not, it's too narrow minded to think of God calling just them to repent. What, what things like that should do is they should widen our view. That should transcend into, is there anything in my life that I need to repent of? And so God's message through events like that, it's not simply, according to Luke 13 and the principle, is not simply to the direct recipients, but it's actually to everybody. That God is calling people to repent, even whether or not you're the direct recipient of something like that or not. The me- it shouldn't help. It doesn't make sense for us to go, look at those Lutheran sinners. They need to repent and be like the Baptist. Because according to Jesus, we're all sinners. We're all equally sinful. So this is just, it's just the message that goes off when we see events like that happen. It's too narrow-minded to think like that. But the call on your life through those situations, according to Jesus's principle in Luke 13, is he's calling everyone into repentance. And so it should hopefully, the, the trigger in your mind should go, that's a catastrophic event. That might reveal God's wrath. Is there anything inside of me that I need to repent of? Is there anything inside of me through the good things, whether or not God is giving me good things and blessings and reminding me of his goodness or whether or not God is giving me glimpses of his indignation and wrath? Is there something in me that I need to repent of? So it should cause you to look not outward at the direct recipients, but inward at your own life. But inward at your own life. And so this is God's message to us. And, and I, I wanted to throw in one other verse because I want you to see the heart of God here. Because if you, I mean, you can't, it's difficult to exalt all love of God and all justice of God when people do that gets added. So I want you to see that God is very pro your repentance in hopes that you might know him. That it's not just a, you should repent because you should. But it's a God who says, I want you to repent. You're my child because I want to know you and I want you to experience the joy of knowing me. So literally the same, the same chapter in Luke, Luke 13, the very end, Jesus is standing outside of the walls of Jerusalem after being rejected and denied by his people. This is what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you and your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not? Behold, your house is forsaken until you say, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is Jesus saying, I want, you've rejected me, but I want to gather you together as a hen gathers her brood. Would you repent? And this is the heart, this is God's heart. It is him pro, he is pro you repenting for your joy, for the joy of knowing and walking with God. And so why do we repent? We repent because, I'll say it in two ways, the less we repent, the less we will experience the power and the presence of God in our life. And the more we repent, the more the power and the presence of God will reign and rule in our life. So here's, here's the big key for repentance. It is, do you desire God? Because without that, there is simply the fuel for repentance is I desire God above all things and I genuinely want to know him and I want to walk with him. And you might think thoughts like David thinks in the Psalms where he thinks as a deer is about to die because he's so thirsty, that's how my soul is for God. That I'm like a deer about to die of thirst. That's how thirsty my soul is for Jesus. So people that repent well, they have this desire for God and they have this view of Jesus where they treasure Jesus above all things. And so listen, repentance is about God. And here's what makes it difficult. It's not about, it's not about your reputation. I mean, it's not about people looking at you and going, he's a really good Christian because typically no one really sees you repent. I mean, there's very few, I mean, no one really gathers around the guy that's repenting and goes, look at that guy repenting. He is really good at it. Let's plot him. Because it has nothing to do with you building up your reputation. It's not one of those, you know, it's not like a spiritual gift or anything where people can look at you and it's just about you desiring and hungering for God. So the key that unlocks true biblical repentance, the fuel for repentance is knowing God and wanting God and desiring God. And so this is interesting because the fuel for repentance is, is wanting to know God and the end goal of repentance is knowing God. So they're very similar that, that the process from repentance, I mean, what gives you the fuel to enter into the process of repentance is I desire to know God in hopes that I might know God. And there's a process that we're about to go through. It's a difficult process though. Like it definitely takes effort because it's not like you just roll out of bed and go, here's what I'm gonna do today. Brush my teeth and repent. It's just not that easy. It, it takes effort and it takes, but it, it comes from a heart that genuinely desires to know him. And like even in Psalms 51, what we're about to get to is, it's a hard passage. Because it's not like, like Ephesians, it all fits together. I mean, you can, you can see that there's logical and kind of congruence in Ephesians. Um, but like Psalm 51, I mean, you can see in Ephesians where there's the problem, we're dead in our sin and trespasses, here's the solution, God makes us alive, and then here's the gospel, and here's implications of the gospel that we're brought together, and we're children, and we're in the family of God. Here's applications of the gospel. I mean, the concepts are kind of hard, but that you can see that there's, there's, there's some logical congruence there. You get to Psalm 51, and it's hard. Like there's, there's, it's not like David walks up to repentance and goes, let me pull out my handbook for repentance. Here's what I need to do. Step one, see the sin beneath the sin. Step two, because it comes when a, when there is hearts that truly long to know the father. Psalm 51 is just an example of what it might look like to repent. And so repentance by definition, there's two parts. It's an inward change of mind about your sin 
that leads to an outward change of life. You've got to have both of those definite two parts there. You can't just have, repentance is not just you outwardly changing your life and still loving your sin. That's not genuine repentance. So that's called religious repentance, that you're trying to simply adhere to your religion's moral code. And the problem with that is Jesus is adamantly and passionately against that. And he is violent about that. Literally, I mean, he calls people names in the New Testament, people that try to clean up their outside, but in their heart, they're dead and lifeless. And so it's not just trying to do better things, but it's, and it's not just inward. Like it's not just you feeling bad about sin. Like it's not just you going, I feel really bad about it, but it never changes. But true biblical repentance has both of them in that there is an inward change of mind about sin. There is a, here's what God thinks about sin and here's what I think about sin. And I'm going to renew my mind as much as I have to and do whatever it takes so that the two merge together so that I think like God thinks and that my mind, when I think of sin, I I hate it. Like I have a God-centered hatred for sin because it creates relational tension and distance between God and I that inevitably leads to life change. So if it never leads to life change, then that's not biblical repentance either. So it's an inward change of mind that leads to an outward change of life. So let's go Psalms 51. In Psalms 51, although it, it's difficult, there I see five things about repentance, um, the, the process of repentance, how to repent. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So in verse two through three, we've got four times David saying, my iniquity, my sin, my transgressions, my sin. And so here is the first the first thing that has to happen in repentance is that you've got to see and own your sin. You've got to see and own your sin rightly. There's got to be a right understanding of your sin. And, and here's what I mean by that. Like David, like he didn't just minimize his sin. Like he didn't say things and think things like, um, you know what, I know that in, in this Psalm, Psalms 51, it comes out of a, a in 2 Samuel 17, David, he did a string of sinful things. I mean, he, first thing he did is he committed adultery with a woman, got her pregnant, tried to kind of cover it up through a variety of different ways, and ended up conspiring to murder Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and then lied about it some more, and then he got caught. So this is coming out of a situation, there's a lot of collateral damage and a lot of things done. And so, yeah, and David, I mean, he doesn't minimize, he doesn't say things like, you know what, I know I did a lot, but at least I didn't conspire to kill two people. At least I didn't sleep with two women that aren't my wife, right? And so this is a, a minimizing view. If you minimize your sin, if you're always thinking things like, you know what, I was really angry at my spouse today, but I, I didn't act out the anger. It was just in my heart and she never, ever knew about it. Or he never, ever knew about it. Um, it was just in my heart. So that's okay. Now, the problem with that is you, you are blinded to the reality that sin in your heart, regardless of if it has an effect on your horizontal relationship, there is a, an effect on your ability to know God and your capacity to know God. And so we, we are pros at minimizing sin. Like some of us, we just wear the Hitler button, you know? I know I did something really bad. At least I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. 
That's minimizing your sin. And so you never will be able to repent well if you never, if you don't see and own your sin rightly. And this, we'll get to this in a minute, but this has a direct effect on how well you see the gospel. Like if you push your sin down, you're, you're ultimately minimizing the cross of Jesus. And the other thing that David did is he didn't hide his sin. Like hiding your sin, the idol underneath hiding sin is you love your reputation more than you love God. That's where hiding the sin comes from. What would happen to me if someone knew that I struggled with this? I don't even want to think about it, so I'm just going to hide it. So I read a quote the other day. The truth I need to keep telling myself is that reputation is a small price to pay for the joy of knowing more of God and reflecting his glory. I imagine myself admired by the crowd and I imagine myself being with God and being with God seems the far better option. But when I'm among the crowd, the struggle begins again. And that ha- that'll happen. Like if there's, if there's a love of self and reputation more than there is a love and a passion to know God, then that is a recipe for hiding sin. And the other thing that David did not do is he didn't blame shift it. Like he didn't just say, you know what? This wasn't all my fault. It was the external circumstances that made me do what I did. It was, it was Uriah bathing nude on top of the roof. Why can't you go indoors, Bathsheba, not Uriah? <laughs> Uriah's the husband, Bathsheba's the wife, yeah. Regardless, he didn't do any of that. So, but this happens, doesn't it? Blame shifting. This is James 4. He says, why is it that you, um, why is it there are quarrels and fights among you? Why is it that that happens? Is it not the passions that wage war inside of your own heart? So you might think that circumstances and people create the sinful tendencies and desires inside of you, but at the end, they might create the temptation but you're the one that goes through with the temptation and the Bible ultimately places the blame for your sin on you and it doesn't allow you to blame shift it and it doesn't allow you to blame your wife. It doesn't allow you to blame your kids. It doesn't allow you to blame your, your external factors. Although they might tempt you, you're the one that engages in the sinful, that sin. And so we want to have, listen, we, we don't want to have a right understanding of sin just to feel bad about our sin. But we want to have a right understanding of our sin because the greater understanding of our sin we have, the more magnificent the cross of Jesus Christ appears to us. That you'll never understand the greatness and the glory of Jesus on the cross dying for your sin if you're hiding it, if you're pushing it away, if you're excusing it, if you're trying to shift the blame on somebody else. All of that will leave you with a very minimal view of the cross. So one of the things about repentance is that as we grow in our awareness of sin, we grow in our love and in our um, awe and appreciation for what Jesus has done on the cross. So the first thing that has to happen is you have to see and own your own sin. Verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Um, like I said before, this this sin created, David is writing this after a large, there is a ton of collateral damage that he created. Like he sinned, committed adultery with a woman, Bathsheba, got her pregnant, tried to hide it, tried to cover it up, ended up conspiring to kill a guy, succeeding in it, lied about it. And there's a lot of collateral damage that sin causes, and that is definitely true. 
And there's, that's definitely true. But David here says, he doesn't say against Uriah and Uriah only have I sinned or against Bathsheba or the people of Israel have I sinned. He says against God and God only have I sinned. And so David doesn't just view sin as to people on the horizontal, but he sees beneath the sin. There's a sin. See, part of repentance is being able to track the sin that takes place beneath the sin. What is it that fueled adultery? And what is it that fueled um, murder? And what is it that fueled um, wanting to hide all of the sins? And at the end of the day, what David was doing is he was uncovering and getting beneath the sin, the outward kind of external sin to the, to the core, to the idol in his heart which in this particular case, I think it was he loved sexual pleasure more than he loved God and he loved his reputation more than he loved God. So at the end of the day, sin is primarily against God. It's primarily against God. And so this is, this is where repentance gets hard because it, it's easy to live on the surface. Like it's easy to simply think of sin in terms of what you've done to people and kind of an outward expression of sin without ever addressing and trying to discover the idols that fuel and motivate the sin. And it's essential for long-term growth to try to identify the idols that motivate sin so that we can excavate the idols, which is the next point. The next part of true biblical repentance is being able to see the sin beneath the sin and then being able to preach gospel promises to the heart, to the idol, so that the idol gets uprooted and excavated. So you'll only have short-term growth if you're only dealing in the surface. If you're only concerned with, I'm angry, I'm going to try harder not to be angry. But if you never ask, why is it that I got angry? What is it that fueled and motivated that anger? Then you're, that, that's where long-term change happens, is when we can identify and uncover idols. I'll give you an example. I've been married for nine months now. All kinds of wisdom. Really, the only thing I know is that I don't know anything. That's really the only thing I know. You're like, what does that mean? I don't even know. I don't even know how to tell you that. I don't even know. Um, but what I know and what I've learned about myself is that um, I hate, I hate clutter. I hate it. I just hate clutter. I don't like, it's not, I like your clutter. If I go to your house and your house is cluttery, it's your stuff. I don't care. But I hate, I hate clutter in the home. And, and it gets, and so as we, as Trisha and I kind of move through our week, it's really easy. This probably happens to you, but it's really easy for stuff to kind of be left out. And, um, so stuff kind of accumulates every now and then. And, and Trisha hates it too. This isn't just her problem. Um, she, she has a redemptive view of clutter where she hates it with a redemptive view. I have an unredemptive view. I'm trying to work through the unredemptive, unsaved view of clutter. And so, but what happens is, is we've had to have a couple, how do I put this? Sit down talks about clutter. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but we've had a couple of them. Once again, she's got a redemptive view and I have an unredemptive view. So this isn't about her. It's about me wanting to deal with my unredemptive view of clutter. And so I've gotten frustrated and angry at clutter in the past. And so, but here, here's what I didn't do. Like, I'm not just trying to repent of being angry at clutter. Like, I'm not just trying to repent of, of going, I'm frustrated at clutter. But I want to ask this question. What is it that causes me? What is it that creates those sinful tendencies inside of me that kind of overflow into frustration, into frustration about clutter. And so over just a period of time, I've been able to think about this and I've talked to some of my, some of my friends about this and Trisha. And, um, and I, I think like we've kind of traced it to 
The only times that I'm really anxious and, and frustrated with clutter is when I'm in the apartment trying to do either seminary stuff or work or something that involves like me mentally thinking because clutter distracts me and it keeps me from being as efficient as I would like. So what's the idol there? He said, I, I have a tendency to find way too much joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in what I do rather than what Christ says about me. I have an idol, a performance idol, mixed in with probably wanting people to approve of, of how much I do. That's a performance and an approval idol that fuels and motivates an outward action. And so the, the promise that I'm trying to preach to my heart I, today, okay, it's just, this is a struggle for me. And so what I'm trying to preach to my heart is I do not find my approval and satisfaction and my whole worth in what I do and what I accomplish or in what people say about me. I get my satisfaction in who Jesus and how Jesus declares me to be. So I try to take the promise that will excavate the idol and preach it into my heart so that the idol is excavated and then I experience gospel freedom so that I'm not bound by wanting to prove myself and justify myself and do a bunch of things, but I'm free of all of that and I know God better. That's how tracing your idol works. And it's difficult. That was not fun. That was not, I mean, I don't go, man, here's, I just want to have fun today. Let me, tra- let me trace my idols. But for the heart that, I mean, but when, when there's a desire to know him, things like that can happen. So you've got you've to see and own your sin, see the sin beneath the sin, excavate the idol in your heart, preach gospel promises to you, ask yourself the why question. If you're wondering, how do I do that? I mean, I worry a lot and I'm frustrated a lot or I'm anxious a lot. Why? Like, what's creating that inside of you? And then you can probably start to kind of trace it. You can start to identify idols in your heart. So the next thing is, um, and this is big because what David's about to do is he's about to turn from addressing his sin and seeing his sin rightly and talking about his sin and how he sinned against God. And he's about to turn to faith in God. And so this is, um, this is the next part. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11, I love verse 11. This, this is such a relational type of a verse. Cast me not away from your presence. And see what sin does? It, it, the presence kind of goes. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So here's what David does. I mean, he goes from addressing the sin and seeing his sin, and then to turning to promises that he has in God. So he's pleading with God to do these things because he knows that God can do these things. And so part of repentance, like we don't want to exalt, we don't want to just be too heavy one way or the other. Like some of us in here, we might just be overwhelmed and we might just live in guilt. We might just see, oh, the only thing we can see is our sin. The only thing we can see is how bad we are and how unworthy we are. And faith in Christ is 
very intricately related to repentance because you've got to turn to faith in Jesus. That there is a going from, I know I'm guilty, to a, here's who I am in Christ. Here's what I have in Christ. I know there's forgiveness to be had. I know there's hope for me. I know that through the cross and through the gospel, I can approach God. I know that God does not love me because I do things or don't do things, but that he loves me now. That God is not into, you don't have to make yourself better to earn God's love, but he's there waiting for you to repent and is willing and is open and sees you as a child. And so this is the thing that we go from seeing our sin into faith in Jesus. That part of repentance goes, it just responds to Jesus in faith. So this is a big part of repentance. Because without this part, if you're only mellowing in your sin and you're never going to see Jesus and you're never going to claim the gospel promises that we have in Jesus. The other side of it is if you're only if you're only grace and you only think about who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ and you never really address your sin and you hide it and you excuse it and all that, then what you have is you have a, um, a minimal view of Jesus because you won't understand the greatness of him dying for your sin if you don't understand how ugly the sin is. And so both of these work together, repentance and faith, moving from sin and, repent and faithfully moving towards Christ because you can, because there's gospel freedom because of who you are in Christ. So the last thing that repentance does, let's go verse 15. Let's go verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. After all of this, after going from, here's my sin, responding to faith in Jesus, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud in your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 18. Do good to Zion, that's the church, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So notice what this produces in David. That repentance always leads to a worship of Jesus. Open my lips that I may sing your praise. That repenting rightfully, it always ends in a deepening love for Jesus and a praise and worship of Jesus because he has forgiven the sin that you've repented of. And so I'll just end, I'll end this morning with, with this. If you're not repenting regularly, like if you're just, if you're letting sin linger in your heart, if the presence of sin goes unconfessed and unnoticed, you will never appreciate the gospel as it should be appreciated. You'll always have a minimal view of the gospel so if you never go through what it's like to walk through excavating idols and applying gospel promises, that kind of stuff stirs affection and love for Jesus. And so you'll never, you'll miss out on a deepening of your love for the gospel and your understanding of the gospel if there's never any kind of biblical repentance that takes place. But for those that do repent, for those that engage into the process of repenting, that increases and magnifies the glory of Christ. You begin to understand, I am a sinner, but look how great of a Savior we have. 
And so repentance only leads to a love for Jesus and a love for the Gospels. Take it one step further. If you're not repenting, how are you going to help others in community repent of their sin and apply gospel promises to idols? Because the nature of sin is to try and isolate you from the community of believers. This happens all the time. That sin inevitably leads you to you doing things on your own and kind of isolating yourself from believers. And this happens where, where people that are unrepentant of sin, they just feel weird around Christians. And so how is it, how are you going to be effective? How are you going to engage in deep, meaningful community if there's nothing inside of you that's repenting, that desires God, that wants to get rid of your sin? And the answer is, is you're just not. That community is going to be at its best for you, a gathering of people to hang out. But where there are people that are personally repenting, community happens and there is a deepening of community where now people are able to say, I can help you walk through this idol because I'm walking through a similar idol. Here's how the gospel affects that idol. Here's what I know about the cross and about Jesus. And now we have a deepening of community. And then ultimately, if, if there's no repentance happening, that will ultimately render you useless for the mission of God. Gospel community mission are affected when there's no, when there's no repentance in the lives of believers. And just like we ended the this, this series on gospel and mission, we know that mission is not about you doing a bunch of things. It's about you loving and knowing God so much that you're okay with sacrificing time and energy to engage the lost world around you, to invite people into your home, to do things in hopes that other people might know God. It doesn't, missions does not start with you doing something. It starts with you loving and knowing God. And how's that going to happen? It's going to happen when you repent of sin when the thing that separates you and God is repented of. So gospel community mission is at stake for Stonegate. And so the hope is that we would be people that want to repent because your greatest joy in the world ever is knowing God. And God, this is exactly what God says is all over the place in the Bible. Israel in Jeremiah chapter two, they turn from God to broken cisterns that hold no water. They'll never find satisfaction in the sin that they're pursuing. They've traded God out and have substituted what he calls a broken cistern that holds no water. There are only three types of water in the Old Testament. And the cistern was the last type. And then God describes himself as the fountain of living water. And I don't remember what the second one is, but God's the fountain of living water. I remember. But part of repentance is putting away the broken cisterns that don't satisfy, that don't they don't provide any source of joy to the God, the fountain of living water, because he is where true joy is at. And knowing him is what you're created for. And it's, it's, it is joy for you. Glory to God. You get the joy. That's where repentance ultimately leads us to. So let's pray together. Father, I pray for, um, God, it would be your greatest gift to us to give us the desire to repent. God, it would be your greatest gift to us to, to help us to walk out of here going, I want to repent because I want to know you. And I've, I've engaged into broken cisterns that hold no water, that are not satisfying, that don't provide joy. So God, help us to repent well. 
God, I pray for the idols in our heart, God, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us idols, that it would be your grace for that to happen. Because I, you want to walk with it. You want us, just as Jesus stood outside the gates of Jerusalem and said, I, I want to gather you together and I want to know you and I want you to know me. So God, I pray that that would be our heart. I pray that the goal would be to know you more and to walk with you, that we would not spend our lives doing a bunch of things to the neglect of knowing you, which is the thing in life. It's what you're all about. It's what we're created for. So help us. It's in your good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.